Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's... um. Let's see now. It's uh, um, Tuesday evening, I guess. And I'm going to see if I can do now. <clears throat> trying to be efficient to do the Haftorah this week, <clears throat> which is, of course, about Egypt. Um, tonight's uh, podcast is being sponsored by uh, the Lowenstein family. Lee G. Lowenstein, his wife, um, uh, in, in memory of his mother-in-law, Mrs. Lassen, who passed away just the other day. I knew her very, very well. This is Mrs. Greta Lassen. That's uh, Golda Khanna Bashlama Barth. Danny told me, uh, who was a, a really wonderful person. I bet you I knew her five decades. Used, in the old days, I used to know her because she was uh, the mother <laughs> of my students, of Ellie and Danny. But I, besides that, I, I know she's a very smart person and very fine individual. She graduated base Yaakov. I saw the yearbook in the early 60s. That's the beginning of when Baltimore started to take off. Once they got a full day school for boys, K through 12, and a full day school for girls, Beis Yaakov, K through 12, became possible to do that, which is right around that time, late 50s, early 60s. Then that brought about a bit vast sociological change <coughs> over the succeeding decades. People don't realize that, but that's what happened. And she was a wonderful example of that. And she really did build a bias and be strong. I, uh, I was very sorry. I didn't know that she was um, ill. I'm very sorry to her passing and, uh, I have very, very good memories. Um, the whole family can be very proud of her. They don't need me to say that, but I don't mind putting it on the record. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, thank you to the Lowenstein family. That's the, the daughter and the son-in-law. <clears throat> We're looking this week, naturally, anti-Egypt. Well, I mean, duh. Why would Shmos Ve'er Bobashal, why would they be anti-Egypt prophecies? I mean, that's not too hard to figure out. <clears throat> Here we have from Yecheskel, the prophet Ezekiel who lives, um, it's, the time is important. <coughs> He's the end of Baishrishon. Specifically, <coughs> there was two uh, sieges of Jerusalem, A and B. The first one is what you call Golos Yehoyachin. The second one is what you call Golos Yehoyachin. In round one, Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged the city which surrendered to him, excuse me, which surrendered him, and he carried off the elites. The king, the queen, the queen mother, <clears throat> the king was actually young. I don't want to go through all the details. Uh, carried off the elites to Babylonia, and he left uh, the others behind. And he said, don't rebel against me again. One of the members of the elite that went with him in the first round to Bavel was Yecheskel, the, the Kohen. And he's the prophet Yecheskel. <clears throat> so he's not in Israel. He's in Bavel, but he's prophesying about what's going on in Israel. <laughs> now, he hates Egypt. And that was in this... In this Haftorah this week, it's all anti-Egyptian. Pretty vicious, too. Why? Well, that's not hard to figure out. <clears throat> it is not because he's still angry about Pasha Shmos Ve'er about the slavery of the Jews in Egypt. That's not what it's about at all. So then why is he angry at Egypt? <clears throat> the answer is, Egypt represents, for some reason, a Mishagasa to the Jews, that they're very, it's very easy for the Egyptians throughout history, to seduce the Jews. 
from day one. The best, you're going to laugh when I'm going to say, the best example I can think is the peanuts. Remember, she's always saying, kick the football, and then she pulls it away, and he does it, nachamal, nachamal, and you figure, what's so stupid about you, you know? Why don't you learn your lesson? But he never learns the lesson. That's a cartoon. <clears throat> I assume this peanuts is still around. Maybe nobody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> haven't seen the funnies in a long time. But you know what I'm talking about, right? And the same thing, the history of the Jewish people, especially in the biblical era, especially in the biblical era, was exactly like Lucy and the other guy <clears throat> in the peanuts. Because, again and again, it was easy for the Egyptians to seduce the Jews into getting to do something that was against their own interests. <clears throat> now, in Mitzrayim itself, in the Shibbat and Galus Mitzrayim is Pashat, right? By that I mean that Klai Yisrael assimilated to Egypt, Memtesh Sharituma. So obviously it wasn't too hard to seduce them away, and we've talked about it in the past, and the other day I was talking about the real estate, and even besides that, Batim Moliarism. <clears throat> now we all know that most of the Jews didn't want to leave for one reason or another. So in other words, the Jews liked the Egyptian culture. What can you do? And when they had nothing better than when they got scared, they made an Egyptian god, a golden calf. So in other words, that's that. But even once they totally left Egypt, and God tears Israel, all the rest of it, and they set up their own kingdom, I'm talking about from David and Malachim, anything that has to do with Egypt, in the book of Shmuel, in the book of Malachim Aleph and Beis, and Deborah and Beis, always a negative. <coughs> the Hainu. Egypt, if you look at the map, and I can't help it if you don't know the geography in the Middle East, just Google, you know, and you'll see where Egypt is and Israel is and so forth. And especially you Google ancient maps. They look at Middle East, oh, I don't know, <clears throat> 900 BCE, 800 BC, something like that. And you'll see 700 BC. You'll see there's Egypt, where it's located. And then beyond that is Asia. And Asia has all the great powers that arose in that time. So you have, for example, Ashur, Babel, things like that, Persia. Eretz Yisrael is smack in the middle. <clears throat> in other words, in order for the Babylonians to get to Egypt or vice versa, you got to go through Israel. You remember that's how Yoshiaho died? Same thing for the Persians, same thing for the Hittites, whoever it is. Israel has a bad geography. It's like having a house uh, in the middle of the beltway, literally. <clears throat> you understand? Literally. And um, the Egyptians are always trying to be one of the, the superpower. There's always another country with who they're arguing. Like I said before, it could be uh, for a long time it was Ashur, then later on was Babel, later on was Persia. <clears throat> and the Egyptians are always telling the Jews, join us and fight for your liberation, your national uh, um, independence by joining with Egypt against this other power. Lamashal, join us against Ashur. Join us <clears throat> against Babel. Now, they always get screwed. Because the Egyptians say we're coming and they don't come. And for the Egyptians, it's like a game. Let the enemy come and spend its strength conquering the Jews. Then it'll weaken them. By the time they finish that, it won't be so easy for them to go weiter and proceed into Egypt proper. You get it? So you're using the Jews as your uh, punching bag, as it were. Or your suit of armor. The Nevi'e Yisrael know this because they're novice. And they're always talking about this. And they're telling the kings of Israel... I'm talking about Yeshayahu, Yermiyahu, Yecheskel, and so forth. Don't listen. Don't rely on Egypt. Adraba. All these kings said like this. If it's Ashur, get along with Ashur. Ashur Shevet Api, as Yeshayahu says. You see? 
If it's Bavel, the whole book of Jeremiah is don't mess with Bavel. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is willing to give you a deal. As long as you pay him taxes and are subservient to him and blah, 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 he'll let you have your shalim, you have a base of English. It's a good deal. Take it. No. The kings of, of Yehuda, um, even the good ones, <clears throat> like Chizkiel, believe it or not, always fell for the Egyptian seductions. Okay? For the Egyptian seductions. They're just good at it. They're even good at it in the 20th century, but now it's not the, uh, you know, after Menachem Begin, but I don't want to go into that. That's a whole schmooze by itself. <clears throat> Just take it from me that they're practiced with this for not centuries, but millennia. And the Nevi'im can see through it. And if you follow what I'm saying, <clears throat> then the Echesco is living towards the end of Bayes Rishon, the author of our um, Haftorah today. The Novi, who's giving over the Nevuah of our Haftorah today. See, he lived in a certain time and place. He lived late in the Bayes Rishon period, first temple. What was going on at that time? You had the kings of Yehuda, you had the two superpowers, uh, at that time Nebuchadnezzar above all, that's on the one side, and then Egypt on the other side. So no, the Zavami kingdom of Yehuda, north of me is Nebuchadnezzar, south of me is, is Egypt. Who should I side with? Should I side with Nebuchadnezzar against Egypt or vice versa? The whole book of Yirmiyahu, who's a contemporary, is saying, go for Nebuchadnezzar and not with Egypt, because you can't trust Egypt. As he says in this week's Parsha, if you lean on them, you'll pierce your hand. Okay? As the Pesach say, If you rely on them, you'll hurt your hands. Meaning they're unreliable. They're bad allies. They're using you cynically. And you're too stupid to realize it. So the Egyptians had ambassadors by the court of Judah. They knew how to flatter and bribe this one and that one. And the kings fell for it. So I just told you before... Yecheskel is prophesying in Bavel after he was exiled, round one, from the first seed of Yerushalayim by Nebuchadnezzar. How did that happen? Well, <clears throat> he had a base in Middush, he had a king of Yehuda. The king was Yehoiakim. Uh, he, it's up, it says this in Befeirish in the Book of Deryama. He sided with Egypt against Bavel. The king of Nebuchadnezzar came and defeated him. Yehoiakim, who was a Russian Marusha, by the way, Super wicked. But I'm talking about politically stupid now, not the wicked part. And he, he surrendered Nebuchadnezzar. He promised not to rebel against him. Then the Egyptians seduced him, Nochemol, and he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, who got really angry, and <clears throat> came to invade the country again. And he besieged Jerusalem. And somewhere along the line, it's not clear to us, Jehoiakim died. And so the city under siege... The king is dead, so the king's young son, according to one, he was eight. The other one, according to the other, was eighteen. Now becomes king Yehoiachin. He's brand new. He's no, he's no good for anything. And within three months, the city surrenders. How did they get in this problem in the first place? Why are they being besieged by Nebuchadnezzar's army, especially after they had been defeated a number of years before and had promised uh, to, you know, be subservient to him, and he let them have a decent deal because in return for the subservience and the taxes. He let them alone. The answer is the Egyptian seductions. <clears throat> so the very Metsias of Mitzrayim, as a great power, is intrinsically negative for the kingdoms of the Jews and the Claudius Roll in general. Consequently, you look at the Haftarah today, and yeah, I know it's a little bit of a beginning of the end of the previous parak, but as we call parak even though I know the the the, the are Jewish, but nevertheless it fits here thematically 
And he says over here, you know, um, and I repeat, uh, he's he's prophesying this in Bavel, but it's in Nevuah. Tenth year, tenth month, twelfth day. Turn your attention to Paro, and pronounce the following prophecy. <coughs> and the prophecy is, buddy, you've taken us down, but it's not going to last too much longer. Now, it's not 100% clear when this Nabu is taking place. It's only 80% clear. It's most most likely that this Nabu is taking place <coughs> in between the first siege of Jerusalem and the second. In other words, prior to Tisha B'Av. Uh, it's possible that it was after Tisha B'Av. I think, as best I can tell, it's before. Um, <coughs> the reason I'm saying it's like this. So, the same thing happened again. There was the last king of Yehuda, who Nebuchadnezzar put on the throne, that's Tzidkiyahu. Yeshayahu said, don't rebel against Koamar Hashem. Don't rebe- rebel against <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar. Tzidkiyahu and his nobles were seduced by Egyptian ambassadors and lobbyists. They did do so. And of course, the base of Mishra was wiped down, destroyed, and all the rest of it. And like Cassandra, you know, the, the Yechesco can see this. And he's saying, Egypt is still doing it to us again. So I am pronouncing the following prophecy. Pretty soon, this will never happen again, because Egypt itself will be destroyed. And when Egypt is destroyed, they won't be in a position to hurt us anymore. Isn't that something? And the language he uses, of course, is the one of the Bahamas. Because he says like this, um, I hate you, says God. Pharaoh, you're the big crocodile. Now, this and this and this, in Egypt, the king was a crocodile. If you Google now, as I'm doing as I speak to you, uh, the Egyptian gods, just, just Google Pharaoh and crocodile. You'll see Sebek, the Egyptian god, in the ancient Egyptian religion, whose chief sanctuary is in this and this place, was a live sacred crocodile in whom the god was believed to be incarnate. Now, and you see statues of the Pharaoh looking like a, like a crocodile. <clears throat> so in other words, I mean, I know it sounds crazy, that's what I'm talking about, this is what the Egyptian religion in those days. And so, you know, obviously the crocodile is a symbol of uh, power and viciousness and this and that and the other, who knows what. If you're Egyptian, he lives in the Nile River. The Nile River is the real God, as it says in the Pusik itself. I mean, the truth of the matter is, if you're an Egyptologist, you could have a lot of fun with this Pusik. Because look what it says. God says, I hate you, Pharaoh. Translate that. Hatanim HaGadol, the big crocodile, which is lying in the river, in the midst of the river, so as the crocodile, as you and I know, hangs out in the river. But in Egypt, it's not Stamba River, it's the Nile River. That's the source of all life. If the Nile dries up, they're all dead, baby. Right now, as you know today, in the news... There's a possibility that the countries in the south, southern, below Egypt, might cut off the water from Egypt, and then goodbye Egypt. So he says, "Harovitz besochi orov, haomer li ha'yorvanisisini." The Nile is my own. I made the Nile, and I made myself. In other words, if the if the king is a god, and you know all the Egyptian kings had to claim that they're gods, uh, all of them, and he's it takes the form of a tonim of a crocodile, which is in the river. So, 
In other words, me and the Nile and the river is all one big business. It's like a trinity of some sort or another. And I made myself. No, it's the ultimate megalomania. So shine. Now, again, that's the image that he uses. And he says, I'll treat you like you treat a crocodile, which is, we'll catch you like big hunters do. I'll get these hooks. I mean, let's put it this way. There are professional alligator hunters and crocodile hunters. And, uh, you know, they, they, they like he does over here. I'll take hooks and put them in your jaws. And, you know, I'll, I'll uh, make you harmless and I'll control you. This is God talking. Now, I'll tell you what's really fascinating to me. Um, he goes on to say over here, the Mitzrayim, I'm going to take you and throw you into the desert. It's a wonderful image. Very powerful poetic image. Take a, 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 a the, take the most vicious shark in the world. I mean, the most vicious shark in the world. Let's just say the most vicious shark in the world, which is humongous and unbelievable teeth. You know, it's a it's scary even to look at it. The worst shark in the world, or other fish you want. Now, somehow or other, you know, if they want to, they could do this. Arrange in such a way that you catch this gigantic shark in facing a, a, a metal um, net of some kind or another, whatever. It's a good movie, I'm saying. And then drop it in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> That's my point. The shark is unbelievably powerful if it's in the water. You throw it in the Tashtikha Mabara. If you take a fish and dump it in the desert, you get what I'm saying? It's, it's helpless. You, you you showed its lack of power. You know, when it's in the water, it looks so powerful. Because it is in its element. That's a great vort for knocking the idea of a god. You're a god when you're in your element, but outside your element you can't you know you're helpless, which means you're not a god. You see? So it's a very interesting theological um image he's invoking over here. But he goes on to say over here, and therefore you'll eat and buy the thing. Uh, that Mitzrayim will be a mamlocha shvola. Well, he says Mitzrayim, uh, Okay? The whole place is going to be a, a, a wasteland. And, uh, I'm telling you, it's a vicious thing, okay? And I'll make it over here. You know that that uh, what he called you'll be like I'm going to take Egypt down and it will no longer be a great power. That's very very interesting. I'll tell you why in a second. So there's the words I told you. There will no longer be the how do you translate it? They won't be. They won't be able to gain the confidence anymore of the basis row who will remember their iniquity when they turn to them. <laughs> the Hebrew is a little hard to translate, but that's what it means. Now, what does this mean? Yechesko lives, as we all know, the end of the vice region period. <laughs> so, I'll use the Gaisha dates, okay? <clears throat> Let me use the Gaisha dates. So say temples destroyed 586 B.C. We're not going to get into the question about the Seder Rome and all that for now. I could do it that way also. It'd be easier. But right now, this is easier for me. Um, just sitting here. 
So Yechezkel is writing this approximately 586 BCE. To be more exact, probably 590 BCE. Okay, whatever. And he's saying, Egypt, you're not going to last too much longer this way. I'm going to take you down. You'll be a mamocha shvola. All your power will be like as if you took a crocodile and dumped him in the desert. It'll be garnished, you know. Well, what happened? Egypt, listen very closely, I'm about to tell you. Egypt, for ages, had been a world power. I mean, in the time of Avram, as we all know, it was already at that time a world power. And before Avram, I mean, you know, it didn't start with Avram. He went there because it was a world power. Okay? When the Jews were, were, were in slavery in Egypt, it was the world power. And it went on for century after century. I mean, they had their ups and downs. Sometimes they won, sometimes they lost, but over the major power. <clears throat> At the time, Yechezkel's talking, it's still a major power. What happens, let me just, this is now 590 BC. So about 65 years later, approximately, Egypt ends. It ceases forever to be an independent country. Um... More or less out of Yom Hazem, more or less. You could, we could have a discussion about that. What do I mean? For century after century, you had this dynasty of pharaohs, followed by that dynasty of pharaohs, Nacha dynasty of pharaohs, there's many of them. So it was Egyptians being ruled by Egyptians. <clears throat> okay? It was an internal culture which produced its own rulers. Once in a while, you had a foreigner who was taken in for certain reasons, but 99% of the time, it was an Egyptian empire ruled by Egyptians. That's why they created their own culture, whether we like it or not, and their own civilization, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> uh, it's called Egyptology. You know, you can go to Professor Berman. I told you, he's a, the front guy's the expert in this, in Egyptology. And that's how it went. And then it stops. Not long after this prophecy, the Persians pop up after Nebuchadnezzar's time. The Persian Empire emerges, Cyrus the Great. And I believe in around 525 or so BCE, which is not that long after this prophecy, uh, and Kalvachomer, if this prophecy takes place after the destruction of Bais Rishon, and it's later than 586 BC, like 580 or 570 BC, you know, Kalvachomer, <coughs> Egypt is conquered by Persia, and from that day on, it never is its own country again. <coughs> it's amazing. From that day on, it's ruled by foreigners. First the Persians, then Alexander the Great. The Ptolemies were Macedonian rulers who took over Egypt. So you could argue with me. You wouldn't be right, but I hear the art. You know, Egypt was sort of like its own power, but it wasn't really. It's ruled by a, a, a Hellenistic and Macedonian elite. Then it was a Roman province, then a Byzantine province, then it was under the Arabs, the Arab Empire, and then it was under this empire and then an empire. In other words, from then on, you never had the old Egypt. Right? Uh, matter of fact, <clears throat> and then, you know, it was taken up by the Turks, and the Khalees by the British, and before that by the Mamluks, and blah, blah, blah. You, we, could, we could go down the list. I don't want to bore you. Um, so, in each one of these cases, it's not Mamish Egypt. It's a Mamlochish follow. I remember in the Gemara, they even talk about a Mamlochish follow. Remember this? This is in, um, in Megillah, like in the first parish somewhere, where they have this Rabbi so and so, Pasach, Lapsichta, Bahai Drasha, you know, they would give these drushas. 
and he speaks about a country where Amlocha Shwala doesn't have its own language anymore, its own culture. Egypt, now, ever since the Arabs took over, even before, even before, but I'm saying even since the Arabs took over, which is Adhiyamazeh, it's not Egyptian culture anymore. It's a Mamlacha Shwala. They're ruled by the Arabs. They don't even realize it. They're so in, 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 what's the right word? Culturally bound to them that they're Muslims. They write Arabic. They read Arabic. They don't know the Egyptian language. That's like from ancient times, you know? The cops maybe have a little bit left. <laughs> We're over the country. Yeah, I don't know. I'll tell you the truth. I'm not Egyptian, of course. I don't know how they work it out in their own minds because they are following the culture and the religion of their conquerors who raped them back in the 7th century when the Muslims took it over. And until today, I know there's a physical country called Egypt. I get that. And obviously they work it out in their own minds. But it's not the Egypt anymore there once was. And aside from the fact that Egypt is not a great power, it wants to be. I know the history of Egypt. Ever since 1952, when Nasser came in, they were yearning to be a great nation. And they have all these poems and stuff like that in their culture. And they're the largest of the Middle Eastern countries without question. They are. And in many in many respects, the most impressive of them. That's true, they are. Uh, and nevertheless, they have unbelievable poverty. They have unbelievable problems. And, they, and they're, like, insolvable, you understand? <clears throat> Just, you know, you can be mine in the subject if you care to. Uh, and here you have this guy, Yecheskel, saying this, you know, back, like I say, shortly before this happens. <clears throat> and so what Yecheskel is saying with great bitterness, of course, is he's saying, the Egypt that we know, the Egypt of the crocodiles, meaning the Egyptian pharaohs, that's over. It's, and it's, it's going to be out of business as much as if you took a fish and stuck them in the desert. You get it? It's just gone. It's out of its element. They can't reconstitute the pharaonic Egypt, as we call it. Uh, and the reason is because it's a punishment, or at least it'll innate, it make sure that no longer will Yisrael go and be seduced by them, because they won't be there. Now, the Yisrael can be seduced by others, but not Egypt. There's some real problem we have with every time something comes out of Egypt, we fall for it. Now, even, to tell you the truth, even today, the state of Israel is constantly being seduced by the Egypt of the current government, but I'm not going into current events right now. I'm just pointing out to you that we have this fascinating Haftorah here that sounds boring to somebody if you don't realize the context. And that is that he, that it's basically like a guy saying um, a few years before the First World War, pretty soon there's not going to be an Austro-Hungarian Empire. Pretty soon it's not going to be a czarist Russia or something. It's all going to be gone, you see? Um, but here it's even more because the whole Metsias of the culture and the religion and everything, the crocodile being the symbol of the religion and the whole idea of the pharaohs will be gone. And it was. It is not, has not come back and is not coming back. Um, so here's a prophecy that we can see with hindsight uh, was fulfilled. And um, if this had only happened at the beginning of Bayes Rishon period, Instead of the end, we would have saved ourselves a lot of trouble because then the Jewish leaders wouldn't have been seduced each time in adjoining bad alliances. Wherever the Klai Yisrael is, the Nevi'e Yisrael always had advice for them when it comes to politics. Not only when it comes to Musr and life and mitzvahs, but also politics. Um, what is the proper policy from the point of view of Nevi'em for a Jewish state? You know, for Malchus Yehuda, for Malchus Yisrael. I'm speaking over here of foreign policy. And one of the features of the foreign policy is never have anything to do with Egypt. 
Because they always leave me on the lurch and they always mess you over. As he says, I told you before, that, you know, uh, breaking when you when, when, when they took your hand and tearing their shoulders and when they lean on you. That's the weak reed muscle that you see constantly find in the prophets. You lean on something, it breaks, and it, you know, and and you cut yourself very harsh, har- horribly, because I leaned on it and it broke and went right through my hand, you know. And then, ich, think about what that looks like. So, uh, this is the prophecy that you have in this week's parsha. He talks about Nebuchadnezzar invading and all that. I spoke about that last year, I think, I think, or two years ago. So I'm not going to go into that. But the but the image of Egypt just going out of business as as being as as irrelevant as, like I say, as a crocodile in the middle of the desert. <laughs> I mean, that's like an ultimate picture of irrelevance, right? A crocodile in the desert, a fish in the desert is is an irrelevance. It's, it's an extinction, you see? And that is the powerful image that we have in this week's Haftar. Anyway, I want to overstep my time. Once again, I want to thank the uh, Lowenstein family and the Lassens in general, and I do pay tribute to the memory of Mrs. Lassen. Uh, we lost a good person in Baltimore last week. The Shamashan Abanaliyah. And uh, she should take uh, pride in how her family has turned out. Children, the grandchildren, the great grandchildren. Actually, Danny's making a wedding, believe it or not, in a week. That's how these things sometimes turn out. But on the other hand, I once heard a good vart, which is the biggest Aliyah's Neshama, from the Satmar Rebbe, by the way. Satmarov. The biggest Aliyah's Neshama for a Nifter is to have a child or grandchild walk down the aisle. And that's why he allowed the parent to walk down or something like that. It's in, it's in the Harfinist book on Hilkas Avelis. But I don't have to go into that. I just wish everybody a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.